Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Fish and poi, food from ocean and land. Really simple, really good. This program features the work of 2014 writer Laureen Lylin Lee. She spoke with curator Felicia Gonzalez about her work. Lorene, in the piece you submitted for the Jack Straw Anthology, you talk about the importance of poi mm-hmm. as a cultural touchstone. Right. Tell me a little bit about <laughs> what you do here in the Pacific Northwest to get your fix of poi. Well, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, there's, there is a d- diaspora out, you know, people who have been born and raised in, ha- in Hawaii uh, moving to the mainland. Las Vegas is a magnet, the Pacific Northwest is a magnet, and California, of course. But there's a lot of people from Hawaii. Those of us who were born there and born and raised there, those cultural touchstones are important. And so there are Hawaii, Hawaii clubs. There are stores and restaurants that cater to the Hawaii expatriates. So there are some very good restaurants here where I can get poi. I guess I'm always a little bit homesick, but at least I can get a taste of home, you know, when I, when I really need it. Especially with memoir, how does, how does silence impact your work now or your working process? I do need a lot of silence to produce to be with my own thoughts and to get back into a particular scene or a particular emotion. And it's very difficult to translate that onto the page, into words. As I work on my manuscript and start revising, I feel like the manuscript starts talking to me, giving me more ideas or giving me better words to express something. Now we'll hear a selection from Laureen's live reading. The next reader is Laureen Lylin Lee. Laureen grew up in three cultures, Chinese, American, and Hawaiian. Her memoir, The Lava Never Sleeps, a Honolulu memoir, tells the stories she's not supposed to tell, weaving together family secrets, childhood trauma, cultural confusion, and Hawaiian history geology, and mythology in a journey to discover her authentic self. In Hawaiian, malam means to take care of, to preserve. And you'll hear this throughout Lorene's work. Please join me in welcoming Lorene Lailin. Tonight, I'm, I'm reading a few excerpts from the mem- memoir that explore personal and cultural identity. At my school, most of my classmates were local girls from various ethnic backgrounds. However, there was another contingent of students. Officers based in Hawaii preferred their children attend private schools and my school had its share of military brats, which is what they called themselves. 
Near downtown St. Andrew's Priory was a religious school run by Episcopalian nuns who lived in a simple building next to the school. Each morning, we all filed into St. Andrew's Cathedral for chapel, including lay teachers and girls from elementary through high school. In the main courtyard, a coral cross about five feet tall greeted everyone. The Priory was a well-respected school established in 1867. Every morning, special buses made the rounds, picking up students living on military bases and dropping them off at my school and other private schools from Navy, Army, Marine Corps, and Air Force families. These girls were different from us locals, sassy, outspoken, disrespectful to authority, fast, seeming to live life more accelerated than we did or could even imagine. Most of the girls were extroverts and white, easy to identify and easy to befriend. They were used to traveling from place to place and wasted no time in fitting into new environments and making new friends. They traveled the world to places I had only seen on maps as their fathers moved up the ranks with new commissions. They all dated early, as young as fifth and sixth grade, and wanted boyfriends. They were artful and sophisticated in makeup and hairstyles, and had well-developed busts and cleavage that even our shapeless midi blouses could not conceal. They took more risks and challenged the rules, hiking up their skirts higher than allowed and smoking on campus, and not just cigarettes. <laughs> when I was a junior, some seniors were suspended for smoking pot in the senior lounge. They were simply scandalous. While I remained safe and chaste in all things, observing their antics from a distance with a touch of envy. Such boldness they opened a window into a much different lifestyle than mine. I felt they must have a secret knowledge about life. I wanted this knowledge that imbued them with supreme self-confidence. Whether these girls were still virgins was not so important as their understanding of the power of their sexuality. They flirted easily and were overly familiar with our male teachers, some of whom did not discourage such attention. Nothing overt or sordid happened, as far as I knew. But I detected a charge in the air, a silent crackling during their conversations in class. In this next piece, I have fallen in love and married a young man outside of my culture. Marriage presents new and different challenges for both of us. After almost two years in San Diego and San Francisco, I got homesick and returned to the islands for what I thought was a brief visit, I decided to stay. When my husband arrived in Honolulu, computer-operated jobs were non-existent there. But he soon found a job as a cabinet maker, a union job with a reputable local company that paid well. Still, it was a major adjustment to go from his white-collar job in San Francisco to a blue-collar one. His biggest challenge, however, was being a mainland holly from the Midwest in a shop filled with local guys. These brown and yellow-skinned brothers spoke pidgin, not good kind mainland English. 
He not only looked different, but he did not understand the local lingo. He wasn't used to being a minority, and he got picked on and harassed. I think most of it was harmless, but then again, maybe not, at least not from his point of view. I was sympathetic. I had felt marginalized when we lived in San Diego, but I knew Rick was a decent guy and a hard worker. I hoped the situation would improve with time. Living and working in Honolulu was entirely different from when he was in the Marines, which insulated Rick from the everyday realities of island living. In this artificial cocoon, he didn't feel like a minority because he lived on base where everyone pretty much looked like him. Military life was highly structured and dominated by white males. Now, as a civilian, he was immersed in island culture, which mostly welcomed and accepted him, meaning my family and friends. But his work environment threw him way out of his comfort zone. I was thriving in my job, but he dreaded his interactions with coworkers. He felt outnumbered by the Bretas and alienated. His complaints became all too frequent, but we couldn't talk about it. We didn't know how. Rick often sat at home after work. He could have gone out when I was working late, but he, instead he found a friend in Pakalolo, or pot, which he began smoking in the service. He masked his loneliness and unhappiness with weed. I began questioning the marriage more and more, questioning myself, who am I? Should I stay with Rick? Rick and I were different. I had overlooked the obvious when we were dating. Race, class, and education could no longer be ignored. Background and upbringing con contribute so much to a person's sense of the world and one's place in it. His view was not wrong, just different from mine, and I thought he would not change. I enjoyed and thrived on a whole buffet of diverse cultures, a variety of different seasonings, flavors, and textures were normal to me. As newlyweds on a budget, we ate a lot of Hamburger Helper. He was happy with that. Hamburgers, potatoes, lots of ketchup were fine anytime. When I made some stir fry one evening and saw him put butter on his rice, <laughs> I had to hide my disgust and look away. <laughs> In the memoir, I write a lot about food. This was not intentional. It happened unconsciously because food communicates so much about personal and cultural identity. You like some poi? How do you tell a local from a visitor? Offer some poi. While not completely foolproof, it comes pretty darn close. <laughs> always. I've always eaten poi. Born in Honolulu, I was likely given a bowl of poi and a spoon as a toddler to learn to feed myself. And I likely made a mess. Poi on my face, on my clothes, on the table, on the floor. When some got into my mouth, it tasted so good. Soft on the tongue smooth and slippery and easy to swallow. As I got older, I was less messy, but we kids liked playing with our food. When wet poi dried on our arms and fingers, it looked like wrinkled skin. 
we made our hands into claws and cackled like old witches. Raised on poi, I love it still and order it whenever possible at Hawaiian-style restaurants in Seattle. I understand people's aversion if they've never had it. It's been described as a gray paste, which would make anyone gag. But it's been much maligned. Made from cooked taro root, poi is gray with purple highlights. <laughs> really. Mixed with water, it has the consistency of thin cake batter. I watched my mother prepare poi. She bought a bag of poi from the grocery store at home. She soaked the unopened plastic bag in a bowl of water to loosen the sticky contents from the sides of the bag. After a few hours, she got ready to mix the poi. Removing her rings, she turned the bag inside out and with her hands, scraped the poi into a large ceramic bowl. She squeezed the bag several times to get every morsel. A soft, lumpy mass sat in the bottom of the bowl, which was in the sink so she could add cold water from the faucet a little at a time. With her hand, she dug into the mass, stirred and squeezed out the lumps, stirred and squeezed, kneading and slapping. She worked the pot until it was smooth. Adding water stretched the quantity to feed six children. From the bag to my mother's hand, to the table. It was a splendid ritual. Historically, Hawaiians ate poi with their fingers. I use a spoon. More texture than taste, it has a subtle flavor, rather bland. How do you describe the taste of white bread or potatoes? Same thing. And like them, poi is a staple food. It is central to Hawaiian culture and identity. I can eat poi just plain, but we usually mixed in other food for more flavor. Salty, lomi lomi salmon or canned sardines, fish and poi, food from ocean and land. Really simple, really good. When I visit the islands, having Hawaiian food is a priority. My memory tells me it was even better before. Is this true? Or is nostalgia coloring my memories? Or have my taste buds changed with age? Food generally was simpler back in the middle of the 20th century. Eating island fruits tells me my taste buds are intact. Fresh, tree-ripened papayas and mangoes sing on my tongue, bring sunshine to my insides. They are food fit for the gods. Beautiful to behold luscious and delicious and nutritious. When I visit, I want to ingest the islands, fill my body with food from the land of my birth, as well as experience the islands on my skin, the warm, salty ocean, sandy beaches, cooling trade winds, the sweet, warm air. Reconnecting with islands both internally and externally, I am renewed, even youthful again. Food provides much, much more than nutrition. Poi and island fruits revive memories of my growing up in the islands, of days of endless sunshine and boundless energy, of my mother preparing simple foods. 
they push the pause button on current worries. Decades later, I laugh at my younger self. I no longer need poi for playing, being old, and having wrinkles. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2014 curator of this program is Felicia Gonzalez. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Jen Hammond, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by two trios with Victor Noriega, Jeff Johnson, and Greg Campbell, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Fort Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>